Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you again this morning and uh, starting to fill up again in here. It's, uh, it's really nice to see. I'm going to turn around as I come up here and see so many faces uh, back in the building again. So uh, we just praise the Lord for healing. Praise the Lord for, for healing. And uh, welcome you all on Facebook uh, watching as well. And uh, pray that you're blessed wherever you're watching from this morning. Uh, so we're going to continue our uh, five-week study in the book of Judges as we study the life of Samson this morning in a message that I'm calling prayerful or prideful, uh, and we'll we'll think about that as we go through and, and think about Samson's character as we proceed through this chapter. Well, uh, before we get into the Word, let's uh, go to the Lord and, and ask for help. Uh, Lord, we come before you this morning with so many concerns, uh, both personal concerns and concerns for the world, Lord, as uh, we've had natural disasters this week, uh, what happened in New Orleans, and uh, Lord, how that storm swept all the way through the East Coast and killed so many people uh, up there, and uh, who knows, untold damage uh, financially as well as uh, loss of life, Lord, and uh, the people in Haiti still reeling from uh, that earthquake that they've had, Lord, and uh, so we have so many concerns, and, and aside from that, uh, just all the issues we have in our culture today, Lord, and uh, we just pray that your word would prevail, uh, Lord, and that people would uh, see who your son is and uh, that they would receive him. And Lord, that uh, by him, the world would be changed. And Lord, as we come to our passage this morning, we just uh, pray for enlightenment and illumination. Uh, Lord, help us to see the spiritual lessons you have for us in the life of Samson. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who many of you have heard of, uh, wrote a poem uh, years ago called There Was a Little Girl. And here is the first stanza of that poem. There was a little girl who had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. And when she was good, she was very good indeed. But when she was bad, she was horrid. And so uh, I chose to start that today because uh, we can't be sure sometimes when we're dealing with Samson which one he is. Uh, he's the little girl with the curl. Is he really, really good indeed or is he in fact horrid? Sometimes he did really good things and it seems like he's going to the Lord in prayer and acting in the Lord's strength. Uh, and other times uh, he's just being himself, uh, seeking revenge, being angry uh, and doing very, very bad things. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we, we tend to look at Samson uh, and we forget that we're a lot like Samson, right? Uh, we look at, uh, at Samson and say, how could that man do those things? And, and yet we don't recognize ourselves in Samson. Uh, Samson is a lot like us. He sins, he receives God, God's mercy, his grace, and then he goes out and he sins again. Uh, and that's a familiar refrain for all of us. So as we come to chapter 15, uh, we're, we're left thinking about Samson, trying to decide, uh, is he very good indeed or is he in fact horrid? And, and it depends, I think, on, on how we view him. Remember in uh, chapter 14, this is a two-chapter story, this story that began uh, with Samson going down to the woman uh, in Timnah. He went down there, he saw a beautiful woman, he wanted this woman for his wife, and two times he says to his parents, go get her for me. Uh, and even though his parents disagreed, they went down, they arranged the wedding. Uh, and then Samson came for the week-long feast uh, that would precede the wedding, and his fiancée's family provided the 30 groomsmen for Samson because apparently uh, he had no friends of his own to invite. 
but instead of making nice with uh, the, the wife's family, instead he proposes this riddle uh, that he thought up after he had uh, eaten the honey that the bees made in the carcass of the lion that he had killed. And so he thought his riddle was very clever, so he proposed very high stakes, uh, 30 sheets of linen and 30 suits of clothes. But what he didn't count on was that these Philistines uh, would rather burn his wife to death and his father and her father and her house rather than losing this bet uh, to the Israelite Samson. Now, they were not going to let that happen. And so she nagged and, and cajoled uh, him until he revealed the answer uh, to this riddle with only hours remaining until the time to expire uh, would have happened. And so when we left off at the end of chapter 14, Samson was enraged at his fiancée uh, for divulging this secret to the Philistines. And so he left her at the altar and he went home to his parents' house. Uh, and that's where we'll pick up the story in chapter 15, uh, where Samson comes now to reclaim uh, his wife. Uh, 15, 1 to 3, after a while in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat and said, I will go into my wife in her room, but her father did not let him enter. And her father said, I really thought you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is her younger sister not more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. But Samson then said to them, this time I will have been blameless regarding the Philistines when I do them harm. Well, the wheat harvest is uh, late May, early June, uh, as the author says, after a while. So several months have passed between the incident uh, with the riddle uh, and now where we are with the wheat harvest. And apparently Samson had a change of heart in the intervening months. So Samson returns to Timnah to visit his wife. And you know, I probably would have brought roses, uh, but perhaps a goat is the appropriate gift for a heifer. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, that's what he went with. Uh, so don't know if that was the smartest gift, but that's what he brought. And the men, meanwhile, would have been busy because it's the time of the wheat harvest. So they're going to be out working in the fields. And this would have been a safe time for him to go back uh, and try to make amends with his wife to, to claim his bride. But, but when he arrived, his father-in-law would not let him in. Uh, to Samson's shock, uh, she had already been given in marriage to uh, one of the Philistine men. Uh, and so his father-in-law's excuse was, well, you know, I thought you hated her. And in some respects, it's hard to blame him. The last time he saw Samson, uh, Samson had just called his daughter a heifer and then stormed off and hadn't been seen in months. Uh, so uh, that's, that could be why. Uh, it also could be that this man was uh, not unhappy that he didn't have to marry his wife off to a, a man of Judah. Uh, but Samson's, uh, Samson's father-in-law was in a tight spot. Uh, probably uh, he feared Samson's wrath, right? Uh, Samson's uh, reputation had preceded him to some degree. He knew what Samson was capable of. At the same time, he would have feared the Philistines also. If he takes this woman away from the Philistine who he married her to and gives her to Samson, well, then he's going to incur the wrath of the Philistines also. So he's in a bit of a jam. And so he proposes a compromise. Uh, look at my younger daughter. Isn't she even prettier than the older daughter? Wouldn't you take her instead? Well, uh, that was not going to work. Uh, Samson took that as an insult. He wanted this woman. This is the woman that he fell in love with. She may have been a heifer, but she was his heifer. And she was not going to allow, he was not going to allow somebody else to have her. So Samson 
promised revenge. And so there's even a hint here uh, that he thinks that maybe he overdid it with killing the 30 Philistines uh, uh, because he says, this time I will be righteous and I will be justified for what I am about to do. So Samson, uh, as a result of this, uh, he decides that he's going to destroy the Philistine economy. So let's look, uh, this section will be verses 4 to 8, but we'll start at verses 4 and 5. Having trouble advancing the slide here. Martin, would you move that forward for me, please? Verses 4 and 5. And Samson went and caught 300 jackals and took torches and turned the jackals tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between two tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he released the jackals into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to both the bundled heaps and to the standing grain along with the vineyards and the olive groves. Well, this is one of the strangest passages in the Old Testament among many strange passages in the Old Testament, right? Uh, This one is bizarre. Uh, So we'll just talk about it for a couple minutes. We've already seen that Samson is very impulsive, right? Uh, He he just does whatever is on his mind. He's short-sighted. He wants to marry a girl who he's never even met. He had a short temper. Uh, He was quick to curse his wife, kill 30 Philistines to pay off his debt. He was casual toward his Nazarite vow, uh, probably drinking wine, touching a dead carcass, and even defiling his own parents uh, by eating the honey out of the dead carcass. But he could also be very methodical. I mean, think about what is involved in this plan here that Samson is going to do to execute revenge. First, he's got to capture 300 jackals or foxes. In Hebrew, the word could mean either. Uh, but he's got he's to catch 300 of these things. And then he's got to have the resources to feed these jackals or foxes. And he's got to have a place to store these jackals or foxes until the big night when he's going to exact his revenge. And then once he's got all 300 of them together, he's got to take two of them at a time and tie their tails together and then put a lit torch somehow tied up in the knot between the tails of these uh, foxes. Now, I have no idea how he did that. I sure hope he had his rabies shot before he tried to do this. Uh, I mean, how do you not get bitten by a jackal or a fox? Uh, and then you send them out into the forest, uh, into, the, into the harvest to see what happens. And you can imagine uh, an animal with a fire uh, tied to his tail is going to be hysterical, right? They're going to run like crazy. Two of them tied to each other. They're going to run all over the place. And who knows what kind of damage that they would do. So this shows that Samson had a very deliberate side. And if he wasn't acting like a spoiled frat boy all the time, uh, he could have probably used this strategic gift that he had uh, to strategize against the Philistines, right? To raise up an army uh, and uh, to defeat the Philistines. But Samson preferred to act alone. And it also shows that he had a cruel side. Like, Why the foxes? Why was that necessary? If you want to burn down their harvest, light a match and throw the match into the harvest. Why do you need the foxes? Uh, So it doesn't even say why he does that, but uh, it just shows that Samson had a a deliberate side and a bit of cruelty to himself. Uh, And but then, you know, you think about it, it says back, remember, in 14.4, God was looking for an occasion against the Philistines. And it doesn't say so here in this particular verse, but think about this. There is no way that Samson could have done this without supernatural help. And so even in, in Samson's vengeful prank, the Lord is behind this thing still, looking for an occasion against the Philistines and using a sinful and spiteful 20-year-old to do it. 
Now, it's the harvest season. That's what the author tells us. And so uh, the Philistines had already cut some of the wheat and they had stored it in the barns. Then there's more wheat out in the field that had not yet been harvested. And then there was uh, still the vineyards and the olive groves. And so all of this Samson destroyed in a single night, the entire year of Philistine crops gone in a single night uh, up in smoke. And you can just imagine Samson sitting on a hillside, right? Watching the carnage happen and just slapping his knee, rolling in the grass, uh, thinking there's having a grand old time laughing at this sight. Uh, and so once it's done, uh, you can imagine that now that he has taken his revenge, well, now the Philistines are going to take their revenge. So 15.6, the Philistines said, who did this? And some said, Samson, the son of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father to death with fire. Well, revenge begets revenge, right? And it always escalates. Uh, and they must have thought that they couldn't handle Samson himself, so they went and attacked the object of his infatuation, this woman that he had to have. And they burned her, and they burned her father, just like they threatened to in chapter 14, if she didn't get him to reveal his secret. So, that's not going to be the end of the story, right? Now that they've taken their revenge, now Samson is going to take further revenge. Verses 7 to 8. Then Samson said to them, If this is how you act... I will certainly take revenge on you, and only after that I will stop. So he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and afterward he, afterward he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock at Etam. So the cycle of revenge continues, and it increases. And Samson uh, you know, sees himself as righteously indignant uh, against the killing of his former fiancé. Uh, if this is how you act, like, you know, I'm all righteous, and you guys are a bunch of, uh, you know, animals the way you are acting, uh, that's how Samson saw this. Uh, and so the Philistines killed two people. Now, albeit the one was important to Samson, but it was only two people that he killed. And now Samson goes out and does a great slaughter, it said, uh, well out of proportion against the crime that was done to his in-laws. <clears throat> and this is what happens when we get on the cycle of revenge. And we don't trust God when he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I shall repay. And so each act of revenge becomes worse and more escalated than the one before until a great slaughter happens and many people are left dead. And still, at the same time, God is working behind the scenes of this whole thing because he was looking for an occasion against the Philistines. Now, Samson, uh, for his part, he knew after this that this thing was not over, right? He knew that the Philistines were going to come and try and exact revenge yet again. And so uh, he knew that that was going to happen. So he went down and lived in the cliff or the cleft of Etam. Now, this is probably Etam over here. That's probably the location. The important thing is that it's in the hill country of Judea. You can tell by the typography, typography on the map that it's very rocky, rough terrain. There would be many clefts in which he could hide. And maybe he went to hide there to protect his own people, the Israelites, so that uh, if the Philistines came looking for him, they wouldn't slaughter the Israelites. But knowing what we know about Samson, it was probably selfishly motivated. He was probably hiding uh, for himself and uh, worrying about his own life. But his people knew where he was. And they were all too happy to sell him out to the Philistines in order to avoid trouble with them. So let's look at how the men of Judah hand Samson over. Verses 9 to 13. 
Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is that this that you have done to us? And he said to them, just as they did to me, so I have done to them. Revenge, revenge. Verse 12, then they said to him, we have come down to bind you so that we may hand you over to the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me. So they said to him, no, but we will bind you tightly and we will give you over into their hands. But we will certainly not kill you. And then they bound him with two new ropes and they brought him up from the rock. So the the Philistines waded deep into Judah looking for Samson. And so they went to the place uh, called Lehi, which is probably in this region, uh, not too far from Etam. So it's still in the hill country of Judah. And when the men of of Judah see all these Philistines coming, uh, well, they did all they could to pacify the Philistines. And and here is the great tragedy in all of this. God sent a man to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, and the Jews, they didn't want to be delivered. They were content living under Philistine domination, uh, intermarrying with their women, worshiping their gods. They were doing all these things. What a tragedy. And this is an important part of the story, uh, that, the, that the men of Israel were content to live under Philistine domination. And it's so applicable to our world today uh, because sometimes we're content to go along with the tide of culture as well. Now, granted, Samson didn't have the highest moral character, right? We could probably all agree on that. He might have been a a difficult leader to follow, but at least he was doing something about the Philistine menace. Uh, Yes, he operated out of personal motives like revenge and anger, but at least he was beginning uh, to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines, as God said was his plan in uh, the beginning. Uh, So God gave uh, Samson success despite his sinful motives, and the men of Judah should have seized the opportunity to get behind Samson and join him in delivering themselves from the Philistines. There were 3,000 of them, right? That's not an insignificant number of people. Uh, And look what God could do with just one man in Samson. So what could he have done with 3,000 if they had gotten behind him? They, They should have jumped on board. They should have formed an army. They should have revolted against the Philistines, but they were so weak, so immersed in Philistine culture that they, they would rather turn Samson over to the Philistines rather than make him their general and go out to war against the Philistines. They thought Samson was doing something to them rather than doing something for them. And they accused of Samson, they accused Samson of making trouble for them rather than them getting together and making trouble for the Philistines. That's what God would have had them do. What a disgrace. And so this is the danger of wading too deep into the culture. That's what the men of Judah did. They were content with Philistine culture. And like we said last week, uh, you can get too close to the puddle and you can get splashed all over. And that's what happened with these men of Judah. Sin always has consequences. And these Israelites, these men of Judah, they compromised with the world. Uh, And rather than standing apart from the world and modeling God's character and qualities and morals and values, uh, they were content to live under Philistine domination. 
And we face the same danger. You know, the world is crazy right now. You don't need me to tell you that. Apart from the natural disasters, like what's happening in New Orleans and Hurricane Ida and what happened in, in Haiti, uh, we face a culture that hates God and everything that he stands for. Uh, and so they refuse biblical truth. And, and just think about what's in the news uh, lately. Uh, these people insist that there are more than two genders. Uh, they insist that boys can have babies. Uh, they insist that it's fair and right that transgender women compete, uh, men compete in women's sports, uh, and that partially born babies are not babies. And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. This is what our culture believes these days. It goes on and on. So when will our culture change? And in fact, when will our churches stand up and say, no, this is wrong, this is falsehood, we will not stand for this which is not true. Now, I'm thankful for you all because I know that you all stand for biblical truth. But I'm not sure we can say that about a whole lot of churches anymore, that they seem to be catching the tide of culture and swimming along with it. And if the church as a whole is ever going to influence culture, we have to look like the church. We have to look different from culture. Uh, and if we're going to influence culture rather than the culture influencing us, well, we have to take a stand somewhere and we have to say, this is falsehood. And, and I'm going to raise my hand and say, this is falsehood. I'm not going along with what you're saying. We can't compromise with the culture or we'll just become automatons like these men of Israel who are just content uh, to go along like these uh, like just hapless followers of the Philistines, like fish so immersed in water that they don't even know that they're in water. Uh, and so that's what uh, we have to do as the church against culture. Now for Samson, for his part, uh, he just wanted to be sure they weren't going to kill him because I think Samson had a plan. You bind me, deliver me to them. Can we agree on that? And they said, yes, we can agree on that. So they bound him and they brought him out to the Philistines. And so here we'll see how God delivered Samson from the Philistines <clears throat> in verses 14 to 16. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him so that the ropes that were on his arms were like flax that burned with fire, and his restraints dropped from his hands. And then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out with his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Another strange passage, right? Uh, well, the Philistines thought that they had Samson right where they wanted him. And you've all seen the movie where the good guy gets captured by the bad guys, and, and it looks like curtains for the good guy, but the good guy's got a secret power that the bad guys don't know about. Uh, and Samson's secret weapon was the spirit of the Lord. While the Philistines rejoiced in their victory that Samson was handed over to them, well, God melted the ropes from his arms and he looked around, found this jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand people with it. Uh, now, uh, I had a prop this morning and I forgot it. I can't believe I forgot it. I have this jawbone of a wild hog that we uh, were fortunate enough to, uh, to, to kill and clean. And I was going to bring it with me, uh, but hopefully you've seen the picture online. But if you look at that thing, how does one pick up a jawbone like this and kill a thousand men with it? It, it seems impossible. If you're a general drawing up battle plans, uh, you have to know how many men you have, how many weapons you have, and what the size of the opposition is. No general is ever going to say, oh yeah, Samson, you got a jawbone there. I'm going to send you into battle against a thousand men, right? That's not a good battle plan. 
But on the other hand, it shows the power of God. Now, obviously, the Bible critics say uh, this story can't be true. I mean, it's not possible to kill a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. But then again, these are the same critics who deny that God created the universe, and these are the same critics who deny the resurrection. So if you don't believe in God and you don't believe that he acts with supernatural power, well, then obviously you're not going to believe this story. But if you believe in a God who is uh, eternal, who has all power, uh, and who does act and use his power, well, then this story is not a stretch for you at all. Surely God can do this. Now, speaking of uh, a hero whose captors rejoiced at his demise, think about Jesus. His enemies rejoiced when Pilate sentenced him to death, and they were thrilled to be rid of him when the Romans nailed him to the cross, and they were elated when they took him down off the cross and they buried him in a tomb, and they thought that their problems were over. They had washed their hands of this man who was such a pain in their necks. But Jesus also had a secret power that his enemies didn't know about. He was God, right? And they refused to accept that. And so uh, in Samson's story, uh, Samson's enemies did not kill him in this particular part of the story, but Jesus' enemies did. And so Jesus shows his power uh, in not only over uh, his enemies, uh, but over death itself as he rises from the grave on that third day. And the critics say, well, that's not possible. Men don't rise from the dead. And yes, they're right unless they're God, then they do rise from the dead. They can do it with supernatural power because God has the power over life and death. And so God raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the foundation of our Christian hope. And Jesus promised that he will raise us from the dead if we believe in him. In John 6:40, he said, for this is the will of my father that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So God has supernatural power. He uses it, and Jesus will use supernatural power to raise us because of his great love for us. And so uh, just as Samson's enemies thought that they had him, so did Jesus's, but Jesus has risen above it all. And so uh, we see parallels in the stories of Jesus and Samson. Well, there are two ways that we can look at Samson in this incident. And, and, and going back to my opening uh, Longfellow poem, uh, some see him as the little girl with the curl who, when he was very good, was very good indeed. And others say, no, uh, when he was bad, he was horrid. Uh, so let's look at the first way first, that he was very good here. Uh, some say that this was Samson's shining moment, the very pinnacle of his faith, while others say it's just Samson being Samson. But if this was an act of great faith, uh, here's why. Think about this. Uh, from his perspective, uh, Samson knew that the Spirit of the Lord wouldn't abandon him. Somehow he knew that in his time of need, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him. And if he was depending on God, think about the faith he showed here. Remember, uh, Samson let the Israelites bind him before the Spirit of God came on him. So and then he, they, he allows them to march him out to the Philistines. So if the Spirit of God did not come upon him, what was Samson going to do? He was going to be killed, right? So it's an act of faith uh, that he goes, allows them to bind him and be taken to the Philistines. He would have been powerless to stop them, and he depended on the power of the Spirit to rescue him uh, in his own time. 
And maybe that's why we read about Samson in Hebrews chapter 11. Time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. This is the great Hall of Fame chapter of Hebrews 11, where all the great saints of the faith are listed, and Samson is here among them. Now, we know that faith is trusting God when we don't know the outcome, right? That's what faith is. We have to place our trust in God. And when we can't see the outcome, which is all the time, right? Since we can't see into the future, we never know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, we exercise our faith in God. And when we are tied up in knots like Samson was, that we can't possibly escape in our own power, faith is trusting God that he will see us through these things. And God's plan for Samson was to use him to begin to deliver the Israelites from the power of the Philistines. And so Samson knew God's plan and he trusted God to be faithful. Most of the time, we probably shouldn't use Samson as an example of, of people we want to model. But if this was an act of faith, well, this is one time that we can follow Samson's example. Now, on the other side of the coin, the alternate interpretation is that he's like the little girl with the curl who continued to be bad. Uh, in fact, he was horrid. And so he had faith, but only in his own strength. Uh, he didn't pray, for example, before the men of Judah handed him over, at least not that we see. He violated the Nazarite vow again by looking around and picking up the uh, jawbone of a dead donkey. He couldn't touch uh, a donkey or anything dead because of the Nazarite vow. And he never mentioned God in his victory poem in chapter 16. In fact, he claimed credit for himself. He said, I have made heaps of them. And we'll see in the next verse that he named the place Ramoth Lehi, meaning Jawbone Hill, which is a monument to himself, right? Uh, so I'm not sure which interpretation is right, whether Samson is acting out of faith or pride, but there has to be a reason that Samson is listed among the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So it's either for what we see in this chapter or what we'll see in the next chapter when Samson pulls down the temple on the Philistines or both. Now, I'm not sure which, but from the perspective of the men of Israel, whether Samson was acting out of faith or not acting out of faith, the effect of Samson's slaughter of the Philistines should have sparked a revival in the faith of these weak-minded men of Judah. What else would you want to see to know that God was with him, to be able to do uh, what he did? And the prophecy was being fulfilled that he was going to begin to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. But sadly, there is no national repentance there's no army that rises up. Uh, Samson always worked alone. No one was there to congratulate Samson or to thank him or to give thanks or praise to God uh, for this great victory. In fact, no one was even there to give Samson a cup of water after this extraordinary event. So God had to deliver Samson from his thirst. Let's look at 17 to 20. When he had finished speaking, he threw the jawbone from his hand and he named that place Ramothly High. And then he became very thirsty and he called to the Lord and said, You have handed this great victory over to your servant, am I, and, am and now am I to die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But God split the hollow place that is in Lehi so that water came out of it. And when he drank, his strength returned and he revived. Therefore he named it En Hakor 
which is in Lehi to this day. And so he judged Israel for 20 days in the days of the Philistines. So God delivers uh, Samson from his human enemies and struck a blow against them in the process. And now God delivers Samson from physical thirst by striking a blow against uh, this rock. And so after Samson's little poem about uh, how he killed a thousand men, he called out to the Lord. And so if Samson was very good indeed, acting from faith, then his cry to God was a prayer, a prayer for provision and a reminder of his own weakness, of his own thirst. And he did acknowledge God's hand in the victory here. Uh, And so his cry shows dependence on the Lord uh, to deliver him uh, from his thirst. So from the smallest things like needing a cup of water to the biggest things like delivering him from a thousand men uh, while Samson trusted God. But then there's an alternate uh, thought, right? An alternate opinion on this. The alternate opinion is that the tone of Samson's prayer shows his poor attitude. Like, is this how you talk to God? And am I now to die of thirst and fall into the hands of these uncircumcised? Uh, He speaks to God like a spoiled child, almost, uh, offering uh, or demanding that God provide him uh, with water. And he does acknowledge God's deliverance, but he doesn't offer God any praise And Samson doesn't give God glory. He doesn't pray for the nation. He's only looking to satisfy his own physical needs. And so God opened the rock and then Samson called the place En-Hakor, which means spring of the caller, not spring of the called, which would be a reference to God. He's spring of the caller. It's a reference to me, uh, to Samson. Uh, So we just have a hard time deciding who Samson is. Uh, Going back to the Longfellow poem, is he very good indeed or is he horrid? Uh, One commentator, Thomas Constable, said uh, that this uh, uh, chapter here contrasts Samson's radical commitment with Judah's wretched compromise. Okay, that's one way of looking at it, and he may be right. But others say this is just narcissistic Samson living for himself, exacting personal revenge, failing to rally Israel uh, and fulfill his calling while God continued to rescue him. So uh, I almost leave it to you to decide. it's, It's a hard thing to decide. And I wonder, maybe it's not either or. Maybe it's both. Maybe he's just like us, right? Maybe he's just like us. We're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who sometimes blow it and yet still receive God's amazing grace as we just sang. Well, let's think about some applications. The first one is that revenge is an insatiable beast. Whenever we are insulted or slighted or mocked or persecuted, You know, for most people, the immediate reaction is revenge. I must get revenge. I must get even. But but we shouldn't seek revenge. Uh, Each act of revenge escalates the conflict. And once we let revenge out of the bottle, we have no idea where it's going to lead. Jesus said, uh, pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And so while the world uh, and the natural man wants to seek revenge, we should always answer Uh, any bad act against us with love, the love of Jesus, because we will never revenge anyone to faith. We will never revenge anyone to Jesus Christ. Revenge pushes people further away from Jesus Christ while love draws them to Christ. So don't seek revenge. Trust the Lord with vengeance, and we just try to love people as best we can. Second, 
look for where God wants us to confront the, confront the culture. We really have to pray for wisdom in this. You know, the men of Judah had a perfect opportunity to stand up and confront culture, uh, get behind Samson and do that. God raised Samson up for that very, very purpose. But these people, maybe they were just too afraid. Maybe they were too comfortable. Uh, we don't know why, but they, they chose uh, to submit to the Philistines rather than conflict and change. And if we're not careful, the culture can wash over us too. And it can change us, and we ought not to be content to, to follow the current of culture. Uh, we have to recognize when God is calling us uh, to stand up against the culture, to call out falsehood, but always to do it, to speak the truth in love. Remember, Paul told us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that means radical commitment, radical obedience to Jesus Christ, even if it means conflict with the culture. The men of Judah were weak. May God grant us the strength to influence the culture for Christ. And finally, remember that it's God's strength that will carry us through. You know, the Spirit of the Lord came on Samson when he needed supernatural strength, not before he needed it. Many of us are facing challenges, sickness, disease, relational problems, financial struggles, God will come when we need him to come most. He will be with us when we need his strength and his power and his resources. He promises that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And if that was true for Samson, it will be true for us as well. So let's trust God to show up on time and carry us through. And when the world sees us doing that, they will say about us, how are you so calm in the face of the world's calamity? And we'll have an opportunity to say, it's because I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, who promised never to leave me or forsake me, and who will deliver us from this calamity, uh, either through it or if we don't make it through somehow, we know that we're going to be in heaven someday. And that peace and that calm that the world sees in us is going to be something that draws the world and that's what the world needs now, to be drawn to the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Samson's life, and we pray that you would continue to help us to see ourselves in Samson and, and not uh, look at him as an object of derision, uh, but to say, Lord, how am I like Samson, and, and what can I do, Lord, to, to help see how you want to deliver our people from the culture and from a wicked world, Lord, and, and how you would do that through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see these things. Help us to reach out to a world that so desperately needs your Son. And Lord, help us to understand that uh, we're never going to reach the world with hate, Lord. We will only reach the world with love, the love that Jesus Christ showed to us by dying on the cross for our sins, Lord. Uh, make this plain to us and, and use Use what you have taught us. Use the gospel in our speech to draw this world that is so desperate for you to yourself, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.